Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Where's the energy, guys? Assalamu alaikum. Alhamdulillah. So welcome to um, our event this afternoon and thank you for coming. Alhamdulillah, Ramadan is less than a week away and what better way to start Ramadan than have Sheikh Omar with us today. It's a really an honor and a pleasure to have him with us today. For those of you who don't know uh, Imam Omar Suleiman, first of all, astaghfirullah al-azim, right? Because you should know him. Um, just a brief introduction, Imam Omar Suleiman is the founder and president of the Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research. Inshallah, later on today, he's going to be telling you about uh, this uh, great initiative. He's also a professor of Islamic studies at the Southern Methodist University. He's also uh, the resident scholar at Valley Ranch Islamic Center in Dallas. And, um, you know, is very, very active, mashallah, in the uh, Islamic scene and the academic scene in, in the United States. So without further ado, we would like to invite Sheikh Umar Salman to give us some boost for Ramadan, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You guys sound very relaxed. This is a relaxing country, mashallah. Since I've come in, I've just been, I feel like I'm, I'm automatically relaxed. Um, so I'll spare you the introduction because I've met about eight of you so far. And it was, Assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam, you're so much taller in person. So you don't have to say that to me when you come up to me after the lecture. It's already been done for you, inshallah. I know, and I apologize if, if my height is offensive to you. Um, but in, in all reality, barakallahu uh, fikum. I'm very humbled and honored to be here, subhanAllah. And I want to start actually by thanking the whole Falaq team uh, for their hospitality. Uh, it's, it's been just a few hours and mashallah, I can already see the, um, the chemistry that you guys have and the way that you work together. So may Allah put barakah in your organization and the organization uh, of all da'wah efforts and good things that are going on um, in this beautiful country. And I also want to thank all of you for coming here. Um, I want to thank you because I know that, uh, you know, making time on a weekend to come and listen to an Islamic lecture in a country with a lot of beautiful beaches and water uh, is tough. And I want to thank you for walking through the pool area with your head down, like good Muslims. You know, when you walked in, you avoided the whole fitna, right? Just put your head down and you said, we're, we're going, ihdina sirat al-mustaqeem. And you came to Sirat al-Mustaqeem, inshallah. Now, with that being said, next week is Ramadan, inshallah. And it is a great, subhanAllah, it is a beautiful, beautiful time to be a Muslim when this beautiful season is upon us. And the Prophet says, Inna lillahi fi nafahat, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has seasons of mercy that he bestows upon you. Present yourselves to, this, to, to the seasons of mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it may be that you would be touched by one of them. And you would never be deprived again. Meaning what? If you think of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he puts blessed months in the year where you can attain in one month the blessing of an entire year. And he puts blessings in certain weeks that you can attain the blessing in that week that you could attain for the entire month. And then a day in the week, in Yawm al-Jum'ah, in the day of Friday, a blessing that you can attain for the entire week. And then in your day even, 
there are times of the day that you can attain the blessing for the entire day by saying a few du'as and observing that time. And that's the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He gives you these seasons of mercy. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to live to see Ramadan. Allahumma balighna Ramadan to allow us to observe. I didn't see, hear anyone say ameen. Just say ameen. Say ameen. It's okay. You can say ameen to du'as. I ask Allah to allow us to observe it and to be forgiven through this blessed month, to accept it from us, to allow us to observe Laylatul Qadr, and to allow us to be raised as being completely forgiven. Man saama Ramadan imanan wa ihtisaban ghufira lahu ma taqaddama min dhanbihi. The Prophet says, whoever observes Ramadan in, 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 with iman, with faith, and with ihtisab, seeking its reward, all of their previous sins will be forgiven. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us that reward. Ameen. You know, subhanAllah, a lot of people take for granted that they will live to see Ramadan. And that's the biggest mistake that we can make. Some of you might know, one of the greatest Muslims in the world passed away last year before Ramadan. Anyone think who that is? One of the greatest Muslims in the world passed away last year right before Ramadan. Muhammad Ali, may Allah have mercy on him. And I had the blessing of, of praying janazah on uh, Muhammad Ali, rahimahullah ta'ala. He was not just one of the greatest Muslim Americans, or probably the greatest American Muslim of all time, but truly one of the greatest Muslims in the world, one of the most famous people in the world, a man who made the name Muhammad such a proud name for many people that did not know the Prophet ﷺ, they came to know the Prophet ﷺ through him and came to know Islam through him and came to accept Islam through him. And, you know, I, I've gotten to know his family over some time. And the way that he used to observe Ramadan is very beautiful. Uh, SubhanAllah. So you can imagine that, that some people pass away right before Ramadan. And we might be amongst those people. We might be amongst those people that pass away right before Ramadan. So you should make the intention from now to fast this month and to be forgiven through this month, inshallah ta'ala, so that if you don't make it to that month, then you would still get the blessings of it because the Prophet said, Innamal a'malu bin-niyat, verily actions are but by intentions. Now, to talk about the subject, the topic in particular, renewing your promise to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I want you to think about right now the most vulnerable moment you have ever felt in life, your lowest point in life. All of us have it. A time where you faced your most difficult moments. Whether it was you know, a career holdup, whether it was a, a moment in school, the loss of a family member, death, uh, a disease, a relationship that you pursued and didn't work out, or a marriage that, that, that fell apart. Um, just some, something that represents your lowest point in life. I want you all to actually envision and take yourself back to that moment that you are at that lowest point. And if anyone in here feels like they're at that point now, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala relieve you and elevate you and bring you out of your hardship. But think about that lowest point. In that lowest point where we feel so vulnerable before the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, suddenly we are compelled to ask Allah. Suddenly, we start to make all of these promises to God that if you get us out of this situation, Ya Allah, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you just see, if you give me money and you give me this career holdup, if I was rich, then I would do this. If I was this, then I would do that. 
And for so many people, when they actually get out of that moment of vulnerability, what happens? They completely forget everything they said to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, every promise they made to Allah, everything they said they would change about their lives because they're comfortable. They're comfortable. And when you're comfortable, you are not moved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is our nature as people that adverse circumstances move us towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because when you are in a vulnerable moment, you automatically shift into a state of reevaluation. You reevaluate everything about yourself. And your faith is included in that. You reevaluate your iman. You reevaluate your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because when things are uncertain, you start to look at everything in your life through a critical lens. Everything now has been shifted back into focus. And your faith is included. And Imam Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyya ta'ala says that, and from the wonders of Allah that he has given to us in this world, is that our ahwal, our circumstances, are always changing. There is no such thing as a stable hal. You know when you say, كيف hal, When you ask someone, كيف haluka, How are you? And, you know, we don't actually mean it, right? If you actually say to someone, كيف حالك? And they say, well, actually, since you asked, let me tell you about this and tell you about that. It's part of the greeting, right? Salaamu alaykum, كيف الحال? Alhamdulillah. You answer for the person and say, Alhamdulillah, before they can say, Alhamdulillah, back, because it's part of our conversation. But your hal is always changing. Meaning what? One moment, you may be wealthy, but you're sick. One moment, you're sick, but you're, or, or you're healthy, but your income is suffering. One moment, things are sorted out with your relationships, with your families, but now you're suffering in your career or your job. And then one moment where it all seems to have come together, something falls apart. But the point is, is that your hal is in constant change. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah says that the Prophet wasallam lived in every hal. He lived in every dimension. Why? The Prophet ﷺ was born into this world an orphan, right? Completely neglected. Can you imagine, subhanAllah, can you imagine no woman wanted to breastfeed the Prophet ﷺ because they said, what are we going to get out of this baby? What are we going to get out of this child? We're not going to get any money out of this child, no connections, nothing out of this child. What do we get out of this child? Halima Sa'diyah saw something special about this situation, and she nursed this, this, this baby, alayhi salatu wasalam. But think about this neglected child. What are we going to get out of this child? Then the Prophet moves on. He becomes a favorite to his grandfather. His grandfather passes away. The Prophet goes from being a shepherd. Can you imagine, subhanAllah? I, I think about this. How many of you have been to Umrah or Hajj? Raise your hands. You guys are really close to Saudiya. All right. If you go to, to Umrah or Hajj, and I don't know if Do Donald Trump might be doing Umrah. I'm not sure. If anyone sees any images of him on Twitter in Ihram, let me know. All right. But the point is, is that you've gone for Umrah or Hajj. How many of you have, are familiar with the Ajiad area? Ajiad. Have you seen the hotels Ajiad? You guys have seen that? Can you imagine for seven years the Prophet says that I used to be a shepherd of sheep all by myself, for the qararit of the people of Mecca, for the pennies of the people of Mecca. You walk by a jihad and you see this shepherd with his sheep, 
and you don't give them a second look. And the Prophet used to collect just the pennies, just the small change of the people of Mecca. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet wealth. He becomes a successful merchant. Alam yatiman fa'awa. Didn't I find you an orphan and then you were strengthened through Abu Talib? Allah saw you searching and he himself guided you. You were poor and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enriched you through Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. So he goes from being excluded from the class, the royal class, okay, being just this honest man, a shepherd. People love him, they like him, he's a good man. But he's a poor man that no one really gives a second look to. To now being wealthy, to now marrying Khadija, and now being co connected to the elites of Mecca, right? So now he has it all. He has reputation, he has family, he has wealth, he has connection. Prophet had everything, which, by the way, makes his going to Hira, going up to the cave, so beautiful. Because when he went to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in i'tikaf, in seclusion, in khalwa, in that cave, searching for answers, the Prophet had a perfect life. It's a picture-perfect life. It's everything you'd want. A beautiful, loving wife, beautiful children, fame in society, reputation, wealth. You've got everything. So his going to Allah was for nothing but Allah. It wasn't because he felt weak now, and I need to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help me. He has everything he could possibly want. But Allah bestowed upon him this quest, this journey, right? And then suddenly his hal, the Prophet goes from being rich and famous, okay, or, and loved, to being a stranger in his own society, to being called a madman, a sorcerer, a magician, rejected by his people. But he was still wealthy, so he lived in rejection, but he was still wealthy. Then the persecution becomes severe, and they started to suffer. The boycott happened. So the Prophet has Khadija, but he also has no money, no wealth. Okay? And he's persecuted. Ask yourself this question, and really, if you, if you know the spirit of the Prophet do you think the Prophet would rather have wealth or Khadija? Khadija. He loses Khadija, he loses Abu Talib, rejection, poverty, no family. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turns it around for him. He's in charge in Medina. The Prophet goes from being fugitive to being head of state. Okay? But he didn't have Khadija. Can you imagine how much the Prophet would have wanted his wife to be by his side? Khadija radiallahu anha to say, see, we made it. All that struggle that we went through in Mecca, alhamdulillah, now we've been accepted. Khadija never saw it. And that's why when the Prophet came back to Mecca and Fatih Mecca, the conquest of Mecca, something was missing. They said, Aina Tanzil, where do you want to go, Ya Rasulullah? Where do you want to stay? Do you want to stay in this person's house or that person's house? He said, no. He said, pitch me a tent in Hujun, next to Jannat al-Mu'alla, the graveyard where Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha uh, is buried. He wanted to be close, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and reminisce. So something was missing. There's victory here, but then there's hardship here. And Imam Al-Qurtubi says the Prophet ﷺ, عَاشَ فِي جَمِيعِ الْأَحْوَالِ He lived in all states, 
And he showed excellence in every state. He literally demonstrated to us the sunnah of happiness and the sunnah of hardship, the sunnah of wealth, the sunnah of poverty, the sunnah of having children, the sunnah of burying children, the sunnah of celebrating your daughter's marriage, the sunnah of having to bury your daughter. All the sunnahs are found in the Prophet because his ahwal were all over the place. And Ibn al-Qayyim says, and the Prophet of Allah who had the most shift in ahwal in his life was who? Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam. He lived in every state. He goes from being the beloved child, the most beloved child, the favorite child, to playing with his brothers in the park, to now being an abandoned child in a well, to going to being a, a slave, to being a prisoner, and then he's head of state. <laughs> and then he has his brothers at his mercy. And what did he show in each and every single place? Consistency. He was still the same person. One of the most beautiful gems in Surah Yusuf, by the way, is that Yusuf السلام, we get insight into his life at his lowest point and his highest point. His lowest point was prison. That was the lowest point in the life of Yusuf السلام, Prison. I mean, he's in prison and the, the, the people come to him, the men come to him to ask him for dream interpretation. What did they say about Yusuf when they met him? They said, We can tell that you're a person of excellence. They noticed from the khuluq, the behavior of Yusuf You're a person of excellence. Okay? That's his lowest point. His highest point, when he's the Aziz, when he's in charge, prime minister, and his brothers are at his mercy, and they tell him, without knowing who he is, We can tell you're a person of excellence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the same wording to show us that Yusuf in prison is the same Yusuf on the throne, which is very hard for people to achieve. Because our circumstances can change us as people. We can change as people. Our circumstances can be very dangerous. You know, there's a shirt in America uh, that a lot of people wear. I said, guns don't kill people, people kill people. It's not the gun, it's the gun that enables the people. Of course, in America, there are guns everywhere, so it's not a very good analogy. But still, people kill people, right? I remember, subhanAllah, there, were two, there was a husband and a wife in front of me, and this woman married her husband when he, when, when he was in poverty, when he, when he didn't have much money, and they were barely making it. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah showed him generosity and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him wealth and he advanced in his career. But what happened? He became a jerk to his wife. And his wife, Allah, in front of me, she said, I liked you better when you were poor. You were a better person. You changed. Because our circumstances can change us. Sometimes Allah gives us something and we change for the worse. Listen to this very powerful narration from Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. It's narrated by Al-Baghawi. It's a beautiful statement, but it's scary too. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, إِنَّ الْعَبْدَ لَيْهَمُّ بِالْأَمْرِ مِنَ الْإِمَارَةِ أَوْ التِّجَارَةِ A person, the servant of Allah, starts to desire something of this world from tijara or imara, meaning from, uh, from fame or leadership or wealth, either fame or money starts to desire it. Until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees it for that person. It's been made open to that person. 
It is coming to that person. فَيَنظُرُ إِلَيْهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَ مِنْ فَوْقِ سَبْعِ سَمَوَاتِ Then Allah looks at him from above seven heavens. Allah sees his servant. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala يَقُولُ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ Allah says to the angels أَصْرِفُوهُ عَنْهِ Take that blessing away from him. You imagine it's on its way to you. The risk is on its way to you. The sustenance is on its way. You're about to get exactly what you want. You're getting the person that you wanted. You're getting the wealth that you wanted. You're getting the position that you wanted. It's on its way to you. And the angels are bringing it down to you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at you from above seven heavens and says, Take it away from that person. Why? Did that person do anything wrong? What did they do, Ya Allah? To have that risk essentially intercepted. What did they do, Ya Allah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, because if I give it to that person, I will have to throw that person into hellfire. Why? Because they will change. And it will divert them away from Allah. And Allah would rather keep you pure so that you enter into Jannah than give you what you want in this world so that you end up in hellfire. So the person, that servant continues to say after that, oh, he beat me to it, she beat me to it. They, they got this, they got that. Why me? Why me? And it is nothing but the blessing of Allah on that person that Allah held it back from you. Allah knows you. Allah knows what ails you. Allah knows what cures you. Allah knows what renews you. Allah knows what destroys you. Allah knows His creation. Allah knows all your fine-tuning, the stuff that people don't see. The person that you really are, beyond the appearance that you give in public. Allah knows you. You are who you are in the dark. That's who Allah knows. Allah knows your thoughts, your inner workings. How certain, certain things will affect you. How certain things will move you in different directions. SubhanAllah, Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu. I, I just thought of this actually, SubhanAllah. Allahu Akbar. When he was passing away, Uthman radiallahu anhu came into him when he was sick. This just shows you how these people internalize what they say. Ibn Mas'ud was sick. And Uthman radiallahu anhu saw him dying of his sickness. Uthman radiallahu anhu said, Aati laka bi tabib. Should I go get you a doctor? Qal, at-tabibu amradani. He said, the doctor is the one who made me sick. That doesn't mean don't get medical help. That means Ibn Mas'ud understood these were his last moments. And he said, I'm pleased with the qadr of Allah. I'm pleased with the decree of Allah here. Allah knows his servants. And Allah knows what to give you and what to withhold from you. And the Prophet ﷺ gives us this, this image, an authentic hadith. He says, alayhi salatu wasalam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala withholds the dunya from his servant the way that one of you would withhold water from someone who's very ill. What he meant by that, sallallahu there are some sicknesses where water, cold water, would not be good for you. But it would feel good, but it won't be good for you. There's a difference between the two, right? Something might feel good, but it's bad for you. Okay? So it would feel relieving, but it's actually hurting you. I remember when, when my wife was in delivery, with uh, the first uh, child and sisters, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. Uh, we men couldn't do it. <laughs> I'll just, I know I couldn't. And that's why Jannah is under your, your, your feet. 
truly, subhanAllah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward uh, all of our sisters. I was, and none of the brothers said ameen. They were like, oh, we can do that. I could get pregnant. I could have a kid. Piece of cake. I remember when my wife was delivering uh, our, our first child, and uh, as she was getting close, uh, she, the doctor told her she couldn't drink water close to the operation. And the, they'd give her a little bit of ice to chew on. And the nurse said, no water. And my wife looked at me, and she gave me the look. And she said, I want water. And I looked at the nurse, and the nurse said, she can't have water. My wife is looking at me like, who are you going to listen to, the nurse or me? And I, I was thinking of this hadith, subhanAllah, that sometimes a person wants something so bad, and you have to withhold it from them out of love for them. Allah does that with you. Not because he wants to punish you. Not because he, it's out of vengeance. Not because you know he wants to torture you and wants you to feel hurt. Allah wants to break your addiction to dunya. You know, when you have a drug addict, it's irresponsible to keep feeding them the drug to keep them happy. You need to learn to live irrespective of your circumstances. Your connection of Allah has to mature to a place where it doesn't matter what's happening with you. And Ibn al-Qayyim says that the ahwal are always changing. You know why? He said so that Allah can constantly teach you that this dunya, this world, is not a place of istikrar. It's not a place of stability. This world is not meant to be a place where you find stability. This world is meant to be a place of instability to show you that you should not pursue stability in a place where stability is impossible. That doesn't mean you don't do well with your work. That doesn't mean you don't do well with your relationships. That doesn't mean you don't pursue the best of this world and ask Allah for the best of this world. But your expectation of this dunya has to change. Your expectation of what you get from this world has to change. And your relationship with Allah has to be consistent. The one thing, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said, the one thing that's worse than death is losing your connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one thing that has to be able to, to persist throughout all of that is your connection to Allah. وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى حَرْفِ Allah says some people worship Allah on an, on an edge, literally a cliff. <laughs> They're always on a cliff. If good things happen, they say, okay, we'll pray and we'll be good Muslims and we'll go to lectures. The minute something bad happens to them, they jump off the cliff with their iman. Allah says in Surah Al-Fajr, as for Al-Insan, you're, you're named Insan because you always forget. When Allah tests you by blessing you, yes, Mabatalahu Allah tests you by blessing you. And Ata says, Al-Ibtila'u bin Naim aqsa wa ashad min al-ibtila'u bin diqi wal faqr. To be tested with ease is much more difficult than being tested with hardship and poverty. Why? Because at least the one who's in poverty recognizes something is wrong. When everything is good, you don't recognize that anything is wrong. You don't recognize it as a test. So when a person's in that state, he says, Rabbi Akraman, my Lord honored me. He doesn't say that out of gratitude. This isn't which is to say alhamdulillah when good things happen to you. This is to essentially 
justify your position, justify your position and justify everything you're doing in life and say, look, Allah loves me or else he wouldn't give me all of this. So you're doing a lot of haram, but you're not facing consequences in this world? You say, well, God must love me. Allah must love me because if he didn't love me, then lightning bolts would be striking me right now. My house would be burning down. I wouldn't have any money in the bank account. We equate prosperity in this life with the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the opposite of what the Prophet taught us. We don't believe in the prosperity doctrine. We believe in something deeper than that. So this person says, Rabbi Akraman, look, Allah loves me. Then Allah tests that person and Allah just restricts, restricts their wealth. Not demolishes it. It doesn't all tank. It doesn't all go down the drain. Allah just takes a little bit away from it. And that person looks to Allah says, my Lord is humiliating me. Why me? Why is God doing this to me? You know, subhanAllah, I, 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 don't, I don't make this up. I actually had a brother one time in my office who was losing faith. Why? He said, he said you know, and he was very wealthy. It was weird. I mean, he drove like a really nice car and everything was great in his life. He said that every year I take my children on a vacation to Europe. And this year I can't do it. And he's angry with Allah. Because he doesn't have enough money to take his kids on a vacation to Europe this year. And that's like the biggest disaster in his life. And you know what, subhanAllah, as silly as that sounds, you know when we start having the faith crisis? Not when we see hardship happening to people around the world. But when we get pinched and we say, why me? Why is God doing this to me? You know, you weren't bothered when 600 people died in Syria in one day. May Allah give them victory. But when you didn't get into medical school or you didn't get that promotion that you wanted or you didn't get that person that you wanted, why is Allah doing this to me? Meaning what? We don't actually care as people whether or not life is fair. We just want it to be unfair for us. As long as it's unfair in my favor, I'm good. Alhamdulillah, I'll pray and I'll do everything. I'll be the best Muslim in the world. Once it starts to t turn a little bit on us and the ahwal starts to change, suddenly, why does Allah do this? Now I'm concerned about why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And what you mean by when you say, why do bad things happen to good people? You mean, I'm good. Why did this bad thing happen to me? And just so I don't look like a narcissistic you know, selfish person, I'm going to project this on the entire world and say, why are bad things happening to good people when all I really care about is why is this bad thing happening to me? Right? We internalize things in a very greedy way. And your relationship with Allah has to be different. You have to have that trust and that consistency in your relationship with Allah that I will worship you in good times and bad times. The Prophet ﷺ says, as Ramadan is coming up, he says, alayhi salatu wassalam, The one who eats and says, alhamdulillah, is just like the one who fasts and is patient. Meaning what? 
It's about your recognizing your vulnerability in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if when you're eating your good food, and mashallah, you guys have a lot of good food here, all right? You're eating your good food, and at the end of it, you say, Alhamdulillah, ladhi ata'amani hadha min ghayri hawlin minni wala quwa. All praises be to Allah who fed me this, warazaqnihi, and provided it to me. Min ghayri hawlin minni wala quwa. I didn't do anything to deserve this. This wasn't me. This was all Allah. And you say it with such profound belief. Like it's not like, Alhamdulillah, Where's the shy? Where's the tea? It's Alhamdulillah, الذي أطعمني هذا ورزقني من غير حول مني ولا قوة. Ya Allah, thank you. <laughs> I didn't deserve this. Prophet Sallallahu said, a person wears their thawb, their garment, their abaya, their clothes, whatever it is. And when they wear it, they look in the mirror and they say, Alhamdulillah, الذي كساني هذا الثوب. Thank God He gave me this and I didn't do anything to deserve this or earn it. It was all Allah. You know what the Prophet said the reward is for those two du'as? All of your previous sins are forgiven every time you say that. The same reward as All of your deeds are forgiven. Why? Because it's a realization. It's an attitude. It's a recognition. Ya Allah, I need you now, and I need you tomorrow, and I need you the day after tomorrow. And even if everything seems okay in this world, it's not okay until I enter into Jannah with your pleasure. And I will worship you consistently. And I will not question your decree with me. I will ask you for the best of this world and the best of the next and recognize at the same time that sometimes what I think is the best of this world is the worst of this world and vice versa. You might love something and it's bad for you or hate something and it's good for you. So I'm going to take that, Ya Allah. All I want is for you to be pleased with me. All I want is for you to see me in your favor and to enter me into Jannah. That's it. I have no expectations other than that. And I'm willing, subhanAllah, when a person has that attitude, they're able to focus on their worship, focus on what counts, focus on their consistent builds with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't just wait for the next moment for something horrible to happen to them. You know, subhanAllah, Allah Azza wa Jal mentions to us the worst human being in the world. Who's the worst human being in the world? What's that? Fir'aun. The worst human being ever to walk the face of the earth. Worse than anybody that you've ever met. Worse than anybody that you've ever known. Worse than any dictator that lives today. Fir'aun is the precedent. He started it. He shows what it's like to be a dictator. So people are Fir'aunic. Alright? Like Abu Jahl was the Fir'aun of this Ummah because Abu Jahl acted like Fir'aun. So all these dictators act like Fir'aun. The worst human being, even he, 
when the water started to fill up and his lungs started to feel that they were going to suffocate and collapse, even he said, I believe in Allah. Even Fir'aun could be humble in that moment. But that doesn't mean anything at that point. Right? The Prophet mentions to us some people whose tawbah won't be accepted when the sun rises from the, rises from the, uh, the west as opposed to the east. Does it rise from the west in Bahrain? Just making sure. I'll find out tomorrow, inshallah. Not by the pool. All right? But I'll find out tomorrow. But, but subhanAllah, the Prophet mentioned their tawbah is not accepted anymore. Why? Did it, is that what it took for you? You had to see that? And then you said, oh, astaghfirullah. Allah says, People are on a ship, the worst of Quraysh. They're on a ship and they're drowning in the darkness and they call out to Allah, Ya Allah, La ilaha illallah, astaghfirullah, kalla idha balagati taraqiya wa qila man raq. When a person's dying, a person's, anyone can call on Allah at that moment. Anybody. That doesn't mean anything. What matters is, Lamma najahum. When Allah rescues them, how they act. When they get out of the hardship, how they act. Was it just a moment where you screamed out loud? You know, subhanAllah, I fly all the time. I live on a plane. Like seriously, all the time. And you'll see people watching their movies, reading their magazine, and then turbulence starts to get bad. And then everyone puts their magazines aside and starts making dua. Everybody, like... Except for the guy that flies as much as I do. He just keeps watching his movie. Like, yeah, whatever. It's just turbulence. <laughs> Happens all the time. But you see everybody make, like, oh my God, sweating, panicking. The seatbelt sign goes off. Things stabilize. I go back to my movie. I go back to my magazine. It's as if nothing happens. As human beings, we are quick to shift back into our gears and not, and, and not fulfill the promises we make, not fulfill the things we say we would in our adverse situations. So what happens to us? Allah says when He keeps sending you moments like that and you depend on those moments to draw close to Him and you're not listening, you're not responding, you're not maintaining consistency, you know what Allah says? فَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِ أَبْوَابَ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ You want this dunya? Take it. We open all the doors for you. Here, you want money? Go ahead. Drown in it. You want fame? Drown in it. You want this? Drown in it. Go. Go ahead. Go ahead and take it. They get excited because they got what they wanted. And just like that, it ends abruptly. The dream quickly ends. The Prophet ﷺ draws this box. Also the narrator Ibn Mas'ud that the Prophet ﷺ drew in the ground a box. And in that box, the Prophet ﷺ drew a line. And he allowed the line to extend beyond the box. And then the Prophet ﷺ drew these little lines, vertical, Okay, around that horizontal line. Some of them connecting, some of them not. You guys get the picture? Box, a line that starts here, and the line goes out the box, and then little lines around that big horizontal line. 
And he says, alayhi salatu wasalam, you see that box? That's the human being. That's his ajal. That's his life. Meaning it starts here, it ends here. And he says, you see that line that goes beyond that box? Those are his amal. That's his hopes. Meaning what? His hopes extend beyond his life. All right? You're never going to actually fulfill all of your hopes. Even if you die at 110 years old, you're going to feel like there was something that wasn't accomplished and something that wasn't attained that you still wanted to attain. The Prophet said, Yakbur al-insan, a person grows, but his love for this world continues to stay. Like you still attach yourself. And you still want more, 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 more. But then death hits you, and you still have hopes. Okay, if you've ever gone to a cemetery and you look around, and I know here probably you don't have all the years written on the graves as to when people died. Do you guys have that here? Some? SubhanAllah, I, I often just pay attention to that and I see, you know, this person um, born, you know, 1990, died 2001. I think to myself, wow. This person, 20 years old, how many dreams and hopes were buried in the grave with that person that were never fulfilled. So the Prophet said, that's your lifespan. Those are your hopes. Your ajal, your amal, your, your hopes. And the Prophet said, all those lines around that line, does anyone know what they're called? Anybody? He called them a'rad. A'rad. A'rad means roadblocks hindrances. What is he talking about? Those are tests. Some of them catch you, some of them don't. What does he mean, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? This is profound. This is really profound. If you've ignored everything I've said for the last 30 or 40 minutes, listen to this part. This is profound. If Allah is not testing you in your wealth, he's testing you with something else. If he's not testing you with your health, he's testing you with something else. If he's not testing you with family, he's testing you with something else. If he's not testing you with career, he's testing you with something else. We always see the glamour of everyone else's lives. And we only see our own horror. We see everyone else's blessings and only our own curses. Everyone looks so happy on Facebook. Everyone looks so happy on social media. But I can tell you what, just because the Facebook cover photo is their wedding day doesn't mean their marriage is all good. They don't always look like that. So you see everyone else's life and they look so happy, but then what about me? But Allah is testing them differently than he's testing you. But rest assured, they're being tested too. And you're being tested. Some of them connecting, some of them not. Because Allah knows how he created you. He knows your genetics. He knows your desires. He knows what your soul longs for and what your soul doesn't really care for. And Allah tests you accordingly, customizes his tests for you just as he customizes his blessings for you. Some of them snatch you. Some of them miss you. But the point is, the Prophet ﷺ is telling us the key function of these tests is to slow you down. Like Think, think about how profound that is. You're going at, a, 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 I have to keep kilometers, 180 kilometers, that's not too fast, I don't know, I'm thinking miles. Is 180 too fast? You're going at 180 kilometers, and you're about to run smack into the wall of death, 
and you're not paying attention to the signs on the way. So these tests grab you and slow you down. They're like the red lights on the way. Okay? The police on the way, the alarm sign. Slow down, slow down, slow down. You're going too fast. So when Allah takes a little bit of your health, you know what that tells you? One day, I will have no health. My heart will not beat anymore. All of this, subhanAllah, will be gone, decayed, be corpses. One day, this is all gone, all of it. By the way, in a hundred years, we will all look the same. Think about that, all of us. In a hundred years, if you were to open our, well, Allah knows, let's say 200. Maybe they'll come up with some technology to make people live longer, all right? 200 years, if you were to open all of our graves, a person would not be able to tell you from you, anybody. We will all look exactly the same, completely bare bones. So when I lose something of health, it reminds me to slow down because Allah is telling me that one day I will have no health. When Allah pinches my wealth, it reminds me that one day one day my money will not benefit me. One day I will have nothing. When Allah takes away a family member, Allah is reminding me that one day I too will die. I too will not have life. Allah slows you down over and over and over again so that you don't go crashing into the wall of death. So that you remember your purpose in life. Slow down. Time out. Think about why you're here. Renew your purpose. Renew your promise. You know why? Because too often, and I'm going to end with this, too often, when life is stable, we become complacent with our relationship with Allah. Meaning what? Life is good. Alhamdulillah. I'm praying five times a day, doing my basic obligations. I think I'm good. I'm set. This is exactly how it's supposed to be. We don't care to kick into overdrive or to do more or to elevate our status with our relationship with Allah because everything seems to be okay now. Okay? Things start going wrong, we go into reevaluation. So with our relationship with Allah, we become stagnant. We don't go forward. We don't advance. And subhanAllah, in the dunya we sense, in the worldly sense, a person who excels in their trade you know what keeps them ahead of the curve? That they're always looking for ways to get better. Even if they've already exceeded everyone else, they're still reevaluating, reanalyzing themselves. They're critical of themselves and they're trying to gain more skills. They're trying to advance further. That's what a muhsin looks like with their faith, and that's what a muhsin looks like with their world, with their dunyawi world. That's what ihsan looks like excellence. You're highly motivated always. Even if the, the factors around you are not motivating, you're continuing to be motivated. You maintain motivation in your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Secondly, so that's the first side effect. Secondly, when you are constantly in pursuit of this world, you do not recognize what you already have of it. When you constantly want more, 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 you do not recognize what you already have of this world. 
I'll share with you a story. It's a true story. He's actually a friend of mine. This brother who had a really, 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 really nice car. All right? I mean, this car was like his, his second wife. Seriously. Crazy addiction to his car. Like, he used to take care of it, polish it, make sure it always looked just spotless and perfect. So he probably took care of it better than he actually took care of his wife. All right? The car was just always exactly as you'd want it to be, right? So subhanAllah, he went to pick up his kid from school that day, and his son, as he was getting in the car, he has his book bag, and his book sack, or his book bag, you know, there's a strap that's coming out. So when he got in the car, he was kind of reckless. He closed the door, and the strap was still hanging out. In any case, the plastic on the end of that strap scratched his car. So subhanAllah, he tells me, he says, I was sitting there, I'm so upset and angry with my kid. I'm yelling at him. I'm giving him a mouthful. How could you do this? I mean, I'm just going off on him for being reckless and careless. And subhanAllah, while he's doing that, look at, the, look at how Allah reminds his servants, his ibad. While he's doing that, he hits the median on the highway, on the road. His car flips. And it flips over and it catches fire, he crawls out of the car while it's on fire, and he looks back at his car, and his kid is in his car, and his car is in flames. Now, subhanAllah, think about it. At that moment, he remembered, what is this car compared to the blessing of my son? He didn't care about the car anymore. The car could figuratively go to hell. It's burning. It's in flames. I want my son. And alhamdulillah, his son survived. He had some injuries, but alhamdulillah, he survived. Spent some time in the hospital, came out fully healthy, alhamdulillah, moved on. And it changed his relationship with his son forever. For, I mean, it completely reshifted his priorities in life. Refocused everything for him. Because, you know, just imagine that moment. I was yelling at my son for scratching my car. Now my car's in flames, and all I want is my son. Why do we have to function that way as people where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to take something from us? Jazakallah khair. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to take something from us for us to recognize its blessing. Why not appreciate it before it's taken away from you and thank Him and act in vulnerability and desperation to Him and push yourself to the next level before you feel forced to do so. Reevaluate your relationship with Allah, take it to the next level even if everything seems to be stable. And if it's not stable right now and you're sitting in this crowd and you are someone that has a lot of hardship in life right now, then make sure the promises you're making to Allah are sincere. And the things that you say you're going to start doing from now on and the sins that you say you're going to quit and the good deeds you say you're going to start observing, make sure you stay committed to those things, inshallah ta'ala, and maintain them out of your hardship. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to fulfill all of our promises to Him. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us steadfastness, istiqama, on the right path. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us husn al-khitam, a good ending. And may He forgive us for our shortcomings on the way. And may He comfort us with the presence of our Messenger alayhi salatu wassalam in Jannatul Firdaus and with His pleasure on the Day of Judgment. Allahumma ameen. Inshallah ta'ala, dear brothers and sisters, before I open it up to questions. Um, and we'll take questions, inshallah, and you guys can ask me anything. Uh, how many of you have heard of Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research? It's right there. 
So if you haven't heard of it, you just have to read the sign, okay? Uh, Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research is a research institute that we started uh, seven months ago, alhamdulillah. So we're less than a year old. And the goal of Yaqeen is to live up to its name, which is to save people's faith, to save our faith as it's under attack. That means intellectually, personally, spiritually, to harvest that faith in the, fa in, in the, in the face of so many attacks at all different levels. We're a nonprofit. We are a, an organization. All of our stuff is done uh, at the service of everyone, alhamdulillah. And we produce papers surrounding con um, contemporary issues about faith that are harming our faith and causing doubts, shubuhat, around our religion. We pair academics with scholars, produce academic journals, papers, and then break those papers down into videos, articles, infographics, and digestibles and of all different sorts so that everyone can benefit and we penetrate the mainstream media with all of that information inshallah ta'ala so that we are creating the narrative surrounding our deen and we are saving faith both at a community level and at a personal level. So this Ramadan inshallah ta'ala, I have a series that I'm going to, going to be doing. It's going to be a 30-day series inshallah ta'ala uh, called the Faith Revival. And it's literally 30 episodes, very short, hopefully five minutes each. I might hit six or seven, some episodes, but very short episodes about how to revive and maintain your Iman, okay? And you'd be very surprised, all right? Because, subhanAllah, I mean, a lot of times when we talk about our spirituality, we talk about it almost in a random way. But there's a strategy to reviving and maintaining your Iman. There's a strategy to maintaining it, and it's from the Sunnah of the Prophet So it's methodical and Here's the commitment I want from you all, inshallah ta'ala. Number one, if you go to our website, yaqeeninstitute.org, and you sign up, you subscribe to the email list, the video will be mailed, emailed to you every single day. That's number one. Are you all going to do that? If you don't do it, now you made me a promise that you're breaking. Everyone, when you go home, or you could do it on your, your, your phones, subscribe, go to yaqeeninstitute.org and subscribe. Hit subscribe. Um, and inshallah ta'ala, the video will be sent to you every day, even with hopefully some notes as well, inshallah, from the video with our professional note takers. But here's a second commitment. You have to watch every single one of them. Because usually with Ramadan series and with every series, it, the first five videos are like great, and then you just drop off. But I really want you to think about your iman in a methodical way, inshallah ta'ala. There is a manhaj to it, to, to maintaining, sustaining your iman uh, throughout all things. So please, that's all I ask you, is to watch every single one of them and then internalize it and consider it in your own life, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, with that being said, I already took my two commitments from you guys. I'm going to go ahead and take questions, inshallah. Is there anything you want to say first? Jazakumullah khairan, by the way, to you all. Assalamu alaikum, Shaykh. Thank you very much for, for coming here. Uh, I just wanted to address the part where you had mentioned uh, the crowd wasn't saying Amin as loud as possible. And I wanted to, personally, myself, thank you very much for coming here. I came all the way from Dubai, and I'm flying back tonight. And I came today morning just to see you. And I'm a huge fan of yourself and Ustad Laman and the whole crew. Um, I, I follow your Facebook page, and I know about all your Black Lives Matter efforts. And I, I'm a huge, huge fan of your efforts. And I think everyone here should really follow uh, Sheikh uh, Omar's uh, Facebook page and see his efforts. And, building alliances with the non-Muslim communities around the world, because I think that's the weaker part of our faith, where we just concentrate on the Muslim world and don't focus on 
building alliances with the non-Muslims. So you have great efforts there, and I follow you 100%, so I really want to thank you for, for coming here. Um, and then secondly, my question is uh, regarding the complacency and, and, the, and the comfort that one, um, one happens to be in or finds himself in during his faith. Uh, I find myself in that period of life, especially during the weekends, when <laughs> you're kind of off work and, and you have your you have your free time and I often come out of my weekends very scared because I don't end up doing as much effort in my weekends as I do in my weekdays. And um, your, your, your conversation just kind of triggered the thought that's kind of scary to, to, um, to be complacent and to reach that level of comfort. And so my question then becomes what are some protective measures or what are the most efficient protective measures that you can take to fight and negate that complacency and comfort and not have it scare you? Okay. Excellent question, and Jazakumullah Khairan for all of your comments. And thank you for coming all the way out uh, from uh, Dubai. and From Dubai, right? May Allah reward you. That, that really means a lot. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow the angels to accompany you back, as hopefully they accompanied you on your way here. Um, because you came to pursue knowledge with the ta'ala. To answer your question, the Sahaba feared what you just said. So there's nifaq i'tiqadi, hypocrisy and creed, which is to pose as being a Muslim and not truly be a Muslim, to gain the benefits and then uh, deceive and misguide, which is the, the lowest part of hypocrisy. And then there's nifaq amali, hypocrisy in deeds, which is when the companions uh, felt, when people feel like they're not matching their deeds consistently in different contexts. That is the core of the hadith of Hamdallah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who by the way was, uh, subhanAllah, the man had a beautiful ending because of his fear. If you, if you see it, Hamdallah was the one who went to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu and said, Nafaqa Hamdallah, I'm a hypocrite. He said, why? He said, because we're with the Prophet and everything is great. And then we go home and we're bombarded. It's not like we, we commit sins per se, but we just, we become complacent. So Abu Bakr said, you're right, I'm a hypocrite too then. So they go to the Prophet ﷺ claiming hypocrisy. And the Prophet ﷺ says that if you were to be the way that you always were in my presence, then the angels would greet you. The angels would greet you in the streets. So he said to him, Sa'atan wa sa'a, a time for this and a time for that. Now, uh, the, the beautiful thing about Hanullah is he is ghasir uh, al-malaika. His body was washed by the angels. He was raised and elevated when he passed away, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And we know the ending of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But what the Prophet ﷺ was saying is that it is impossible for you to maintain the same output consistently. You need breaks. You need time for leisure. However, be strategic in your leisure. All right? Not open-ended. Like if you think about subhanAllah, when we dive into social media, it just, you dive in and look, I just, I just uh, went into it, I just saw Twitter, right? And start reading tweets. You dive in and then you're just, you're in an ocean and then what was supposed to be five minutes of checking updates became an hour, okay? So you're not strategic or calculated with your leisure. So a mu'min is strategic with their leisure, strategic with their breaks. I take breaks, I do leisure, I enjoy family time because the family has a right upon me, I enjoy ibadah time, myself has a right upon me. I balance these things out, but everything I do is to help me achieve my ultimate goal more effectively. 
Okay? So sa'atan wa sa'a, an hour for this, an hour for that, a time for this, a time for that, is to help me achieve my ultimate goal. And this is what Mu'adh radiallahu anhu meant when he said, inni la'ahtasibu indallahi nawmati kama ahtasibu qawmati. That I seek the reward for my sleep from Allah just as I seek the reward for my staying up at night from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because my sleep is with purpose. I don't just sleep for sleep. I sleep for purpose. I eat for a purpose. I, I, I spend time with my family for a purpose. I take breaks for a purpose. Everything has an intention. And that's the thing. I am intentional about everything I do. Right? SubhanAllah, that's the, really the difference between ghafla and ihsan. Ghafla is heedlessness, a person just all over the place being led and not really thinking or contemplating about where they are. Whereas a muhsan, a person who excels, is, has this intentionality. They're intentional about everything they do. Everything they do is intentional. So my breaks are done with intention. I know what I'm doing, I know why I'm doing it. So when I take breaks, I cannot, number one, depart from my obligations. So it's not like when I take a break, I, I stop doing my obligations. And I cannot indulge in anything haram in my breaks. And as for the benchmarks, the things I set for myself outside of these breaks, I should maintain some of it, even in my breaks, so that I don't completely fall off. Um, one of the things I like to do, and, and I, I, I'm confessing this to you, all right? After Ramadan, I, I need a break after Eid. You know, I'll, Take the family somewhere. We'll go. We'll go somewhere, and we'll just enjoy a couple of days. You know, vacation, whatever it may be. And I recognize, Subhanallah, like the shaitan can really get you in that break. Like you just went from qiyamul layl and i'tikaf and all that stuff to now, just like Eid. And for some people, Eid is a welcome back shaitan party. You might as well just put the banner in your house. He's back. Let's put the Quran away. Let's forget about all that salah we were doing. Let's party. Right? And then also, by the way, shaitan also tries to get you, get you to get your last sins in before Ramadan comes. So your ending of Sha'ban, you want to end off like, hey, I'm going to be forgiven anyway. Let me get it all in right now. So that's not healthy. That inconsistency is not healthy. But taking a break after Eid, a day or two to kind of refresh yourself, spend time with your family, spend time, that's fine. I'm not going to be able to read as much Quran that I did in Ramadan, but... I can't completely neglect the Qur'an now. I'm not going to be able to pray Qiyamul Layl every single night, maybe like I was in Ramadan, but at least maybe a day or two of the week. At least I need to make sure I'm catching my salawat on time and being intent about maybe catching some sunnah now as well. Right? So it's about not having too big of a uh, discrepancy. Al-Iman yazidu wa Faith increases and decreases. But you know, if you're looking at a stable heart, Right? It's, if it's, that's not going to work. Some of you have no idea what I just did. If it's peaking and then it's dead, peak, that doesn't work. Your heart, you, you can't survive that way. Right? So if you think about when a person, your heart is beating at all times, right? All the time. Hopefully it's beating at all times. When you exercise, it works a little harder. When you do certain things, your heart works a little harder. But it doesn't quit and then say, wake me up when it's time for exercise. Our faith also, the fluctuation has to be healthy. It has to be within acceptable bounds. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Um, my question is that I once, uh, I actually have two questions. Uh, one is Can that... Can you raise I your hand? I can't see you. Where, oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, I happened to read a book. Uh, it's called The Magic by Rhonda Byrne. And it's the, the core inspiration for the book is um, based on gratitude. And it quotes from the scripture and from the Quran. Uh, basically, the Surah Ibrahim, uh, where Allah promises that if you are grateful, I will increase you. Mm -hmm. So the book encourages you to thank, to thank either God or a supreme being, or to thank, um, to thank anything for everything that you have in your life. So I just wanted to ask you, um, because I try to practice this, is it, is it fine to say a thank you, or is it better to say alhamdulillah? Like, um, that's, that's my first question. Um, and <laughs> sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, the second one is that you said that some people in this world, they say that um, they claim there is no God because they say, well, how, can, how can God exist when they see so many natural disasters and people suffering? So I just wanted to know what do you say to a person like that that claims that there is no God? Uh, they say that if, if God is all good, where is the goodness in the world because there's so many people suffering? So I just want to know what do you say to people who say that? Okay. Barakallah uh, Fiki. Both questions. The first question, can I say thank you to Allah or should I say Alhamdulillah? The word hamd includes shukr and thana, which is thanks and praise. So hamd is not just thana and it's not just shukr, it's not just praise, it's not just gratitude, but it, it, uh, it includes both. So it is your way of saying thank you to Allah. It's the most perfect way. And even more perfect than that is Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanallah al-Azim. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi uh, means how perfect is Allah, and to Him is due all praise and thanks. So it's 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 a very comprehensive means of thanking Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So there's nothing sinful. I mean, it's not bad. It's just not. It's not going to attain you the reward. Like like. If you can't take a tasbih and go, thank you, Allah, thank you, Allah, thank you, Allah, thank you, Allah. Because there's nothing from the sunnah to say that. But gratitude, by the way, gratitude, uh, gratitude in a way that would increase your blessings and shift your lens, it's, it's not about what you're saying. It's about what you're communicating within those words. The wording is not, like I'm just talking about now from perspective of gratitude. The wording is insignificant. It's what you mean by that wording. You're reminding yourself of the blessings that you have. So the most perfect way is the way that the Prophet ﷺ taught. There's nothing wrong with thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or saying thank you to Allah. Uh, but again, to get the most of that reward, it's better to use the dhikr. As for your second question, it's a multifaceted answer. And, and I did a khutbah um, very recently. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? You can search it on YouTube. It's on the Yaqeen Institute's YouTube channel. Uh, and I, I address this in 30 minutes, sorry, so it's more in depth than what I'm going to give you right now. All I will say to you is that removing God from the equation actually poses more problems than solutions. Because it makes everything completely random and without answer and without purpose. You know, there's a famous philosopher who said, you wouldn't argue with him if you didn't believe he was there. So the atheist doesn't stop believing in God, they're just angry with God and they want to shut him out and ignore him because they can't reconcile certain things that have happened. To remove a designer and a creator from the equation poses more problems than good because it doesn't answer the core question 
which is our existence. Why are we here in the first place? How did we get here? How do, how do we as sophisticated beings end up here with these emotions and with these questions and with such a well-designed and proportioned uh, universe, emotional intelligence, things that cannot be explained simply by uh, you know, uh, dirt and stone and so on and so forth. So it poses more questions than it does uh, answers. And I'll tell you this, as, and I work with people all the time who lose faith in Allah. Again, Yaqeen Institute, that's really all we're trying to do is to help people restore that faith and maintain that faith at the intellectual level, the spiritual level, the moral level, and to have those answers to those questions. I have never in my life met an atheist with tranquility, not once, with sakina, peace in their lives. It's so noisy, it's so troublesome, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, In the remembrance of God, the hearts settle. So when I remove purpose, God from the equation, I don't answer any questions. I actually add more questions to the questions. Uh, the other component of the question of evil more than anything else is that most evil in the world is moral evil, not natural evil. Meaning kids dying out of hunger is our fault. Why are we projecting that on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as mankind, collectively as mankind? There is enough food in the world for every single member of the human race to have a 3,200 calorie diet. That's, what are we doing? 15 people in the world control 90% of the world's wealth. That's a human problem. Dictatorships, human problem. Murder, human problem. Environmental issues, also a human problem, the way we treat our environment. So almost everything can be traced back to moral evil. And there is a saying um, that I wanted to ask God why he allows suffering and hardship and poverty, but I was afraid he might ask me the same question. What am I doing about it? So clearly I can't control this huge picture. I'm only seeing a pixel of the big picture. And there's someone that's drawn this picture that I'm incapable un un of seeing. Let me do my part though to, wrong to right the wrongs that I am seeing. And I'll let Allah do what's in his part. <laughs> human, error. human error. The battery died. All right? So I hope that answers, but please do look up that khutbah. I think it'll be very helpful, inshallah. Zakumullah khair for your questions. I appreciate them. Next question. Um, all right, I see two brothers and a sister. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Um, I have a friend who is, um, she's, sorry. <laughs> I, I have a friend who is um, an amazing person. And um, at some point in their childhood or their high school years, they were Muslim and practicing. And then she developed a phobia of eternity. And the thought of God and eternity, it just freaks this person out. And like, they're very good to their parents. They're, uh, they, they give charity. They do all sorts of good things. And they consider themselves more Muslim than anything. But just that thought, it scares them so much. Like It's full phobia. And I was hoping, since you said you've dealt with so many people, maybe you can help me approach the situation because I don't know what to do, and I want to help. Very good question. I'm glad you asked, and you'd be surprised. A lot of people have these things, um, and some of these phobias and certain manifestations. Allah requires you to believe that it's there. Allah doesn't require you to remember it if it's harmful to you. 
Okay? So I, I, I believe that it's there, but if the, the mention of hellfire causes me panic and in a way that's not healthy, the fear of Allah is good if it's going to bring results, but if it causes me like, like hardship, some people fear death, irrationally fear death, I mean to a point that they're super paranoid about everything. Now the Prophet says that you should frequently remember death. But that's for the normal person. If some, if some people, when they, tr when they remember death, they just, they die inside, right? And they're just paranoid all the time. Then it's not a healthy remembrance of death. So the dosage differs for each person. The iman is what's important. I need to believe it's there. And there's actually something from the salaf of this. Uh, Fudayl ibn Ayyad, rahimahullah ta'ala, his son, his son could not handle the mention of hellfire. Okay? To the point that when Fudayl, would lead the salah, he would not read verses about hellfire to avoid hurting his son. One day he thought that his son was not behind him, so he started to read the verses of hellfire and those things, and he heard a thud in the masjid. And it was his son, subhanAllah. So his son actually passed away. He's called Qatil al-Qur'an, literally that's his nickname killed by the verses because he couldn't handle the mention of it, subhanAllah. Now, what that means is, was Fudayl sinful? Because he would look back and if he saw his son, uh, he wouldn't read the verses? No, he wasn't sinful. That's unusual. It's, it's beyond what the average, I mean, the Sahaba feared Allah the most. And they heard the verses of Hellfire and they didn't collapse and die, right? So. I think it's important for us to recognize those individual situations. If this person, walillah alhamd, considers himself a Muslim, believes it's there, does what they're supposed to do, they don't have to sit there and remember and talk about it and, and, and things that'll put stress or burden on them. Allahu alam. Barakallah fiki. Yeah, Shaykh. Shaykh. Uh, my question is about uh, the work-life balance, and I don't mean work as in your office work. What do you do in uh, Islamic charity or da'wah or salah? I'm a journalist by profession, and whatever time I have, my, 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 my profession is very demanding, so whatever time I have left, uh, I try to uh, dedicate to uh, whatever work I can do as far as Islamic uh, work is concerned. Now you said that you know there should be an, uh, a work-life balance. You know, uh, no matter how many speakers you hear, it's very hard for you to really you know put that into practice. How how can you do that? I know keep in mind that your uh, whatever advice you give is going to be an endorsement of sort for all the brothers. And my wife is sitting here, by the way. I'm asking this because uh, she complains that I get into stuff too deeply and sometimes you know i don't know what it is but you know if there's an issue uh sometimes it's so burning that you really need to put all the efforts in it you can't just leave it halfway and sometimes you think that you are the only person who can do it and no one else can do it correctly or perhaps you know if you leave it something wrong is going to happen to the beneficiary or whoever it's going to affect how you know you see how, how helpless am i am asking this question so yeah Answers is really going to help me. Zakmullah khair. Okay, pressure's on because your wife is here. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that detail. Well, first, I'll make dua for you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always put barakah in your relationship, keep your hearts together, and make you pleased with each other, and let Allah be pleased with you both. Everyone say, Ameen. 
and for all of us, all of our spouses and our family members. Amin. I think I'm done now. Um, no. Uh, look, there's a difference between someone wanting more of you because your presence is pleasant and because you show ihsan in their presence and someone feeling like you are not fulfilling your basic obligations to them. Meaning what? Aisha radiallahu anha always wanted the Prophet to be next to her. She complained when the Prophet would depart from her. Uh, when the Prophet asked Aisha radiallahu anha for permission to start his Qiyamul Layl earlier than he typically would, she said, Inni la uhibbu qurbak. She said, Listen, honestly, I love you being close to me, but at the same time, uhibbu ma yasirruk. I love that which makes you happy. So go ahead. <laughs> but she, she made a point to say to the Prophet listen, I always long for your company. Every time I have your company, it is blessed. So if a person, when they spend time with their family, and this is just a rule of thumb, by the way, it's often quality, not quantity. It starts with that. When I'm with my family, I need to really be with my family. Meaning what? If I'm with my family, but I've got the phone the entire time, and I'm sitting there answering text messages, and kids are jumping over my head, and or I'm sitting at dinner with my wife, and you know I'm doing this the whole time, and not even looking at her, okay? Or the wife with the husband, vice versa. If I'm not with you when I'm with you, then it's not quality time. I could spend five hours with you like that, and it was not quality time at all. So I need to be able to just. SubhanAllah, the number one, pro I know you, you do productivity of stuff, uh, uh, all the time. so just, just turn your phone over sometimes. Seriously, and I'm saying physically turn it over. Not keep it there and look at it. No, just turn it over. When you're having a conversation with someone, when you're sitting with someone, so number one, quality time. SubhanAllah, someone had, had mentioned this with, with, uh, with their kids recently. I won't say, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the professors that works at Yaqeen. He's just saying this, he's like, you know, uh, I, I'd be spending an hour with my kids and I'd get so annoyed because they're constantly playing with me and I'm trying to answer messages. So then, I really started to enjoy them when I just put the phone away for that hour. Yes. Like, I actually started to have fun and enjoy my family because I wasn't trying to do anything else. I was giving them my full attention. So number one, quality versus quantity. Now, this is going to sound really, 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 really corny. And brother, uh, where are you? Do you have children just by any chance? Yes? Yes. Do you guys, not you, I'm not going to ask you this question, it's personal. But I, I tell everyone, you know, subhanAllah, the importance of date nights, not with other people, <laughs> with your spouse. Okay? Like sometimes I need to also spend quality time with the wife, with the husband, without the kids around. Sometimes I need to spend quality time with my kids separately. There was a beautiful thing I learned from, from my teacher, Sheikh Raja, hafizullah ta'ala that every time he'd go to a lecture, he'd bring one of his kids with him. And like, you know, he'd bond with that particular kid. So I have a daughter and a son, so sometimes it's daddy-daughter day one week, then it's daddy-sunday the next week. There's mommy-sunday, mommy-daughter day, then there's just baba-mama day, and the kids are going to do their thing with their cousins and their friends. So dedicated time also individually to, to maintain that connection. Quality versus quantity. And you need to schedule these things. Just like you need to schedule with your relationship with Allah, you need to schedule time with the spouse away from everybody else. Schedule time with the kids. 
and give it its, its, its quality. So date nights are halal as long as it's with your spouse. <laughs> all right? And it's, it's encouraged uh, to do that, inshallah ta'ala, as a means of bringing about that wood and that connection. Um, now, when it comes to finding work-life balance, okay, I would also say that, that you know, as spouses, we need to always negotiate our spaces with each other and consult and try to help the other person understand where I am, what I need to do, and then I need to be forgiving of the other person and try to try to understand and try to compliment. I mean, we should not take hard stands with each stances with each other. When we don't take when when we when we don't take compromising stances with each other on these types of things, it's just a recipe for disaster. And when I don't acknowledge um, some good, like the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that uh, a woman might say to her husband, مَا رَأَيْتُ مِنْكَ خَيْرًا قَطْ He does one thing wrong and, says, and she says, I've never seen any good from you. And what does that do? It just makes him not want to do any good anymore. And it could happen with a husband with his wife as well. She tries to do something better for you. You've, you've asked for her to do something better. And then she makes a mistake and you say, you've never done anything. You've never tried. And what does that do? It just kills any ihsan on the part of that spouse, any excellence or any, any striving. Like, I'm not even going to try anymore. I tried and I got beat down. I don't try, I get beat down. I might as well not try and just keep getting beat down. So acknowledging the baby steps that spouses take and acknowledging carving that time out. Generally speaking, making dramatic shifts in time allocation in your life is unreasonable. Okay? Even with your ibadah even with your worship. So try to just allocate more time uh, for your spouse, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, you know, may Allah put barakah in your relationship. The equation is different for every person. There are obligations that Allah has and rights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, but we should not deal in our relationships in a way of rights. We should deal in the spirit of ihsan, in the spirit of excellence. Look, I'm trying, how can I do this better? The last thing, by the way, and I don't know how true this is here, but it's, it's very true, at least in the West. Um, I tell people that's, you know, where you can negotiate those spaces to where you can involve your spouse in those spaces, do so. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys a, a secret. It's not, actually not a secret at all. I'm a huge football fan. Not your football, my football. American football. Which I know doesn't make sense, but it's still called football. Huge football fan. You know what? I got my wife to start watching football. We watch football together. My kids watch it with me, all right? I don't, I'm not a fanatic. I don't watch it all the time, okay? But, but you know, we'll enjoy it as a family time sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes you can negotiate those spaces and start including each other in some of these things. In da'wah, in da'wah. Sometimes, you know, we want to work for an Islamic effort, work for an Islamic organization. I can find a way to include the family. I don't have to exclude them from the space. I can find a way to negotiate it as much as I can. So where that's possible, do so. Negotiate your spaces, inshallah ta'ala. And then sometimes you need space away from each other. Sa'atan wa sa'a. Not literally an hour and an hour, but you need sometimes your own space, your own social life, your own place to vent, your own place to feel, uh, your own unique identity. Because many times, and it's very dangerous, uh, and, and we, we lash out in inappropriate ways later on in life, uh, when we go into family identity, we start feeling like we're losing our own individual identity. And when we feel like we're losing our own individual identity, 
it's ifrat and tafrit. It's it's excess and denial. We just you know we flip out you know at some point in life and say you know what I need to go find myself again, be me, and you walk out on the family and you say forget this, forget that. Whether it's a complete walk out on the family or at least spiritually or, or emotionally having you know. Uh, abandon the family and then I'm gonna go and find prosperity and find myself again and all that so it it has to be healthy and the Prophet Sallallahu did not give exact equations like he could have alayhi salatu wasalam said that uh, no one of you should sleep until he spends two hours with his spouse he could have said that Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and it would have been binding but he didn't do that because some people have different circumstances different situations and we have to negotiate that as much as we can with each other. I hope that helps, inshallah. Um, if not, then at least the dua maybe helps in the beginning. Barakallah fikum. Assalamu alaikum. Can you raise your hand? Where are you? Assalamu okay. alaikum, Sheikh. Alaikum as yes. Yeah, Jazakum al-Raq, for Sheikh, for your speech. We really enjoyed your talk. Sheikh, I'd like you to give, you, uh, give us a few examples either from the Prophet's life or the Sahaba's life, how they upheld their faith in really difficult times. Um, for example, a loss of a job or a loss of a family member. If you could just help us with a few stories, one or two maybe. Thank you. To me, there is nothing more profound than when the Prophet lost um, his son, Ibrahim. The reason being is that Ibrahim was the last child of the Prophet ﷺ to die. Six children that he lost out of Islam. I mean, how uh, can you? I mean, I can't even imagine getting in the grave six times to bury a kid, to bury my own child. And the Prophet ﷺ lost six of seven, and Ibrahim was the last of them. And when he passed away, the Prophet ﷺ held him and he cried. And Abdurrahman ibn Awf anhu looked at him and he said, Wa ya Rasulullah? You too, O Messenger of Allah? Like, you're human. Like, wow, you're crying? Wa ya Rasulullah? You're crying? And the Prophet said, The heart feels sadness and the eyes shed tears, but we don't say except that which is pleasing to Allah. Meaning, Allah does not forbid us from human compassion and sadness. What Allah forbids us from is questioning Him or allowing that human sadness or compassion to turn into anger with the divine. And the Prophet ﷺ demonstrated his humanness and his completeness with that sentiment. I'll share with you, Shaykh al-Islam and Taymiyyah has a profound reflection. So I mentioned Fudayl, right? Fudayl who lost his son. So you know what Fudayl did? And th this is a question, actually. I'm going to stand up so I can see if anyone can try to answer this. All right? I'll give you this incident. The Prophet ﷺ lost his son and he cried. Right? Fudayl buried his son. And at the janazah, Fudayl was smiling. And they went to Fudayl. And they said to him, why are you smiling? Like, why, why do you have a smile on your face? And he said, إِنَّمَا أَرَدْتُ أَنْ أُبَيِّنْ رِضَائِي بِقَدَرِ اللَّهِ So I want to show my satisfaction with the decree of Allah. Meaning I'm doing this as a means of ibadah, as a means of worship to Allah. Because everyone knew how much he loved this son. How are you smiling? I'm doing this to show my rida, 
my pleasure with the decree of Allah. Here is my question. All right? You guys ready for the question? I don't know what to give to the person who answers correctly, but I'm, I'm actually curious to see if anyone has the answer. Does Fudayl have a stronger trust in Allah than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? So whose reaction was better? Because the reaction of Fudayl showed more rida at face value, more, more satisfaction, pleasure with the qadr of Allah, the decree of Allah, than the reaction of the Prophet So whose reaction was better and why? Every, anyone, everyone can say who, but why? Okay, why? Uh, I could be wrong, and Allah knows best, but oh, perhaps just I'm got taken away. Sorry. Uh, perhaps because the Prophet ﷺ was also an example, so he displayed on how human beings behave, and yet, as a messenger in a state of difficulty, he still taught them what to do. Perhaps. Yeah. Th that that could be an added. So it's not a definitive answer, but Sheikh Islam and Taymiyyah has an answer to it. Okay. So, yeah, that's that's one aspect, though, element maybe. He showed satisfaction and, and mercy. So, yes? I don't know Fudel how he felt at home. His face was smiling. Ah, so we don't know how Fudel's heart felt. His face was smiling. Knowing the history of Fudel, his heart was also at ease. Uh, he was a man of Rida. Allah knows best. But the answer that Shaykh Islam and Taymiyyah rahimahullah gives, uh, actually using the example of Fudayl and the Prophet ﷺ, very similar to what you just said. He said that Fudayl was incapable of combining perfect rida, perfect uh, pleasure with the decree of Allah, and perfect compassion for the loss of his child. He was un his heart was unable to combine both emotions. So he chose the better one, the more important one, which was to show rida. And that was a means of locking out all other emotions that could creep in because if he opened his heart up to start grieving his son, then he was afraid it might take away from his rida. But the heart of the Prophet ﷺ could combine those two emotions perfectly. To where though he was crying, he had complete rida, complete satisfaction with the decree of Allah. I don't have to like how it feels, I just have to have satisfaction with the one who decreed it and know that he did it for a reason that's unknown to me. That's rida. But my heart still feels sadness and mercy at the loss of my child. And that's also the perfect mercy of the Prophet So he was capable of combining both emotions. Very good. Both of your answers, very good, mashallah, by the way. Alright, next question. Yes. Assalamu alaikum once again, Shaykh. Jazakallah khair for coming by. Please remember us when you go back and dua. Uh, I had a question regarding the aspect of how Muslims are suffering. It's all over the world. Um, the specific point that I have that I feel like feels like hypocrisy is when, like, say, um, you're part of helping, say, Palestine or Syria or so on and so forth. So uh, you really can't deal with everything. So then, how? I mean, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that Kajasad Wahid, where uh, if one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. So how, do we, how are we supposed to feel when we can't actually help all over the world? I mean, uh, I was once challenged that you're helping Syria and Palestine and you're not going to do it for Kashmir because it's an Arab issue, so on and so forth. 
So you feel like you can't do everything at once, you don't even have enough funds, so on and so forth. So how do we reconcile those feelings? So um, my answer to that question as someone who gets asked this question all the time, okay, literally, like how could you be working for the family of Jordan Edwards, non-Muslim black kid that was shot by a police officer unjustly in Dallas, Texas? Why aren't you mentioning the Muslims around the world? Where's your wala and bara? I get asked that all the time. And I'm like, scroll down to the post before which talks about Syria and, or Palestine. But unfortunately, there is no way. You know, I used to do dua in the khutbah, and I would say, Allahumma sur ikhwan al-mustadafina fi Palestine, wa fi Syria, wa fi Iraq, wa fi Shishan, wa fi Yemen, wa fi Afghanistan, wa fi Kashmir, wa fi Sudan, wa fi Sumat. And then I realized, no matter what I said, someone would come up to me after and say, you didn't mention. <laughs> so I just said, you know what? Forget about it. I'm just going to say, Allahumma sur ikhwan al-mustadafina fi kulli makan. I'm not even going to start naming names in my khutbah because you won't get it. <laughs> Someone's going to come up and say, you didn't say Yemen. Someone's going to come up and say, you didn't say this, you didn't say that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. So the first thing is that, look, it's impossible. There are so many causes around the world right now, Muslim and non-Muslim, because injustice is our cause, no matter who is perpetrated against. Okay, there's so much going around, it's impossible to be everything all the time. And I would argue, number one, that as Muslims, we place unreasonable expectations on scholars, activists, workers, whatever they may be. Tahassus, specializing in one cause, is a positive thing. Dedicate, if someone says, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to feeding people in Somalia because of the famine, and I'm not going to do anything else in terms of charity work and humanitarianism, they should be praised for that. The only time it becomes a problem is when your dedication to one cause represents the undermining of another cause or the neglect of another cause. So I might feel really, really, really bad about one group of people being harmed or one group of people going through a crisis or tragedy. But I, you know, I, I want to focus my efforts on where I'm best, on what I can control, on what I can handle, on what I can directly influence in terms of policy and work and so on. As long as I'm not undermining the other cause. And it's good for me to try my best to, at, in some capacity, connect myself to other causes as well. But it's good to specialize. And when I say we place unreasonable expectations, you know, I, subhanAllah, Malcolm X, rahimahullah, would have been 92 years old uh, yesterday if he was not assassinated, he didn't die, and so on and so forth. It, would, it was his 90, 92nd birthday. I say to myself, alhamdulillah, Malcolm didn't live to the Facebook age. Because if Malcolm had a Facebook page, Muslims would write on there, why are you talking about black liberation? You're a Muslim. You shouldn't be talking about liberating black people. You should be talking about Palestine now. You should be talking about Syria. You should be talking about this. You should talk about that. Right? I mean, I'm glad Malcolm dedicated himself to black liberation. I'm happy. By the way, a lot of people don't know, Malcolm visited Gaza. So did Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali visited Gaza. Muhammad Ali went to the Syrian refugee camps in, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. He's been all over the world. But 
their mantra was dedicated to their people. There's a beautiful book about Malcolm X, and I know this is very American because this is not, but this is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, there's a, a very beautiful book by Louis DeCaro uh, about Malcolm X called On the Side of My People. And um, how many of you know Dr. Tariq Ramadan? Okay. Dr. Saeed Ramadan, who's Dr. Tariq Ramadan's father, Dr. Saeed Ramadan was Malcolm X's sheikh, meaning he used to write letters to Malcolm. Malcolm used to communicate with him after he embraced the sunnah. And the last night before Malcolm was assassinated, literally the night before, he responded to a letter. He responded to a letter about where, where Dr. Saeed Ramadan questioned Malcolm's exclusivity almost exclusivity and focus on the liberation of black people. And Malcolm responded that I cannot, and in many ways it's a profound letter, he said, I cannot turn away from people that suffer because they have the same skin color that I do just because they're not Muslim and focus my efforts on someone else. I need to focus on them. And Malcolm, and it, it hurts me to think about this. Well, lie, it hurts me to think about this because we glorify people after their death, but you know, Muslims wouldn't pray janazah on Malcolm X. A masjid would not accept his body. Malcolm's janazah was in a church because Muslims were too afraid to pray on such a, a, a problematic figure. Malcolm's janazah was in a church, and only a few Muslims had the guts to go and pray janazah on him because being associated with him meant being targeted for death. And Malcolm, rahimahullah, wrote in that letter, he said that the Muslims are too focused on trying to get white Americans to convert and they're leaving black folk out to dry. They say, you know what, I've got to focus on my people. I've got to, it's not that my love for my people means I don't love my ummah. I can love my people and love my qawm as well. And this is the language of the Anbiya, the language of the prophets in the Quran. Ya qawmi, oh my people. When the Prophet said, Allah li qawmi la ya'lamun. Oh Allah, forgive my people, they don't know any better. He wasn't talking about the Muslims. He was talking about the people that just knocked his teeth out and kicked his helmet into his head. That's what he was talking. He called them my qawm, my people. Oh Allah, forgive them. They don't know any better. So love for qawm does not mean I don't love my ummah. So being focused, being specialized is not a bad thing. Just don't be hypocritical. So I do have a problem when someone is good on one cause but then supports tyranny in another cause. Makes no sense whatsoever. That's hypocritical. So if I'm dedicated to the freedom of one people, but then I am actively supporting the subjugation of another people in the ummah or outside the ummah, that's hypocrisy. Alright, that's hypocrisy. But I can and I should dedicate myself. And I don't expect, sometimes people will criticize some of the activists in the Muslim community, and some activists really deserve to be criticized, and I might disagree with a lot of things that good people do in the activist space. I might disagree with it, but I, I just don't attack people in a vitriolic fashion online because it's not helpful, it's not productive. I'd much rather talk to that person and try to help them see the blind spots that they might see. But some people say, why doesn't this person talk about this and talk about that? That's not their job. They're activists and they're dedicated to this cause. I don't want that activist to act like a scholar because when they start talking like scholars and speaking about these issues, they're going to make mistakes because they're not qualified or credentialed to talk like that. As long as they're not undermining the scholars, it's okay. It's okay. So not everyone has to talk about everything all the time. 
That's not how successful workers work or how successful movements grow. Just don't undermine and don't be hypocritical or selective with your causes. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Barakallahu fikum. I think we have 10 more minutes. So I guess two more questions depending on my tangents. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Sheikh, I want you to Wait, ask raise your hand again. Sorry, where are you? Okay. As you showed the mo uh, movement of your hand, peak and the bottom. So when we're the peak in our iman, and slowly we are going down, there are times in individual life that we don't realize. We have fame, we have wealth, we have fam uh, family, and we're good with our family. Mm -hmm. We have everything, alhamdulillah. But suddenly, at the one moment, you're sitting down, with your four legs and you're thinking, oh, I have reached down. And then you realize you have made such mistakes. While you're going down, I wanted to know how to know at that moment itself. Because sometimes, actually, you are doing everything. You're reading Quran, you're praying five times. You're doing everything. You're giving your time to your family. But there's a moment when you don't realize that you're going down. Okay. So at that moment, how to know it? and improve it. Okay, number one, the series that I'm gonna do addresses this. I'm not just, it's not shameless plug-in. I actually talk about this in the episodes, inshallah ta'ala. I have it as one of my sections. Uh, Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said, ma, ma nifaq illa munafiq. No one feels safe from hypocrisy except for a total hypocrite. So if you think I'm good, I've arrived, that means you're falling. If you feel always a sense of urgency and I need to get better and I'm going down, that's a good thing. As long as that's not leading to despair and idleness and hopelessness and saying, you know what, I can never get there. Okay? So how do I know what state my iman is? There is goodness in being uncertain to an extent about where I am on the spectrum. There's a goodness in that. It's a healthy uncertainty to have because it'll make me work harder, as long as it doesn't make me despair or lose hope. Just know that Allah says, Allah will not let your iman go to waste. And he's talking about salah, meaning Allah will not let the good deeds that you do go to waste. When you feel like you're despairing, remind yourself of the mercy of Allah. When you feel like you're delusional in hope and to a point where it's wishful thinking, then remind yourself to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to work harder. The goal is to stay out of complacency and to stay productive. So when, if I sit with myself right now and I say, you know what? I'm a pretty good Muslim. Alhamdulillah. I get up and I pray Qiyamul and I go, I bet you he's not praying Qiyamul right now. He's probably knocked out. Okay? I'm fasting Mondays and Thursdays and I'm saying, man, those other people don't fast Mondays and Thursdays. Imagine how much reward I will have. That's actually dangerous. That's called ujb, Con being conceited. The Prophet said, If you are not to sin, I would fear for you something worse than sin, ujb, when you, when you become delusional and deluded particularly by your good deeds. So you don't want to get to a point where you say to yourself, you know what, alhamdulillah, I'm great. I'm doing well. You want to be at a point where I'm doing okay, but I can do better. I'm giving you guys like five episodes. All right. If your good deeds make you happy and your bad deeds make you sad, the Prophet said, that means you're a believer. 
That means you're a believer. So your good deeds should make you happy, but not complacent. Your bad deeds should make you sad, but not despair. So I, I need to constantly be on the incline. How do I get better? How do I get better? How do I get better? As far as an honest analysis of where I am on the spectrum, I'm not going to be able to have that honest analysis. As long as I'm constantly in reflection and trying to analyze myself, then I'm doing well, inshallah ta'ala. Barakallah fikum. Last question. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Jazakallah khair, Shaykh. Barakallah fik. Shaykh, my question isn't really relevant to the talk today. Um, it's actually regarding gossip. And so where is the line drawn between gossip, venting, and confiding in someone? So let's say you have a bad day at work. If you tell someone else in the office about that individual, it's technically gossip. But let's say you go home and you vent to your family about someone in the office. Is that considered gossip? Or is it more just confiding in someone and trying to find a solution, even if it's just about venting your emotions about someone? Jazakallah khair. OK, big topic. Number one, you consider it from your part, and you consider it from the other person's part. As far as my part is concerned, I should try not to complain too much to people about anything. OK? Um, how many of you in here speak Urdu? Urdu speakers? Wow, that's most of you guys. All right, so there is a there is a interesting poem written back in the day by Iqbal Shakwa, and then it confused the scholars and stuff. So he wrote Jawab Shakwa. All right, I don't speak Urdu by the way, <laughs> but the na the name of the poem was a complaint. It's a complaint to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then he wrote the answer to the complaint. Shakwa, which is to complain to people, is actually not healthy. Um, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said, when a man came to him and was complaining, he said, You're complaining about the one who has mercy upon you to one who has no mercy upon you. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu qal, لَيْسَ فِي الشَّكْوَةِ إِلَّا أَن تُحْزِنَ صَدِيقَ أَوْ تُشَمِّ تَعَدُوَ There's no good in complaining except that you either would make your friend sad or you would make your enemy rejoice. So to complain to people is just not a good habit. To channel your complaints in dua is a good habit, as long as you're not complaining about Allah, but you're complaining to Allah about your circumstances in a way that doesn't represent ingratitude. So to, to, to channel as much as you can to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rather than the people is good. Secondly, in regards to yourself, still on the topic of yourself, um, you know, it's interesting because when you read the books of uh, Teskia and you read about backbiting and envy and all of these destructive self-diseases, it's about you, not about the person, the other person. Meaning what? The first goal I should have when I read a book about hasad, envy, is not how do I protect myself from hasad, it's how do I protect myself from doing hasad. When I read a book about backbiting, how do I protect myself from backbiting, not how do I protect myself from being backbited. All right, So it, it goes back to a spiritual condition. As for what is considered gossip, the Prophet said, to mention your brother or your sister in a way that they would not like. Now, if you say things ambiguously, anonymously, so let's say you come home and you're telling your spouse about something that happened in work or you're talking to another person and you're not assigning an identity to that person, um, even you know, even hinting who they are, all right? So not only are you not mentioning a name, but you're really keeping their identity protected. That's not backbiting because they are not technically mentioned, okay? 
They don't know that the person that you're speaking about doesn't know. Now, sometimes you're in a gathering and you say, some people, and everyone knows who some people is. All right? That's, that's just as bad as mentioning their name. Okay? So keeping their identity anonymous, inshallah ta'ala, as much as you can, and then restricting it as much as you can. As for confiding in someone. If you're confiding in someone to seek help, to deal with a situation, to resolve a situation, and you might have to expose an identity in the process for the sake of resolving a situation, it's permissible in that case. And you should keep it limited to what you need to, inshallah ta'ala, but it's permissible in that case. So to right a wrong, to right a wrong, or to, to deal with a situation. So for example, um, a woman came to the Prophet وسلم, complained about her husband being abusive. Of course, the guy doesn't like that his name was revealed to the Prophet but she's revealing a situation for help. She's looking for a solution. Or a mutual friend is messing up and doing something haram. And we want to help our mutual friend. So I talk to this other person. I say, listen, we need to get this person out of this. It's not gossip. You know, you can help me in this. Let's go talk to this person. Let's go try to resolve this situation together. Or I need to warn people about someone that might harm them, someone that's of danger. Not warn people as in write a PDF about a person because they're deviant, right? Because that's like the thing to do. Um, but no, warn people as in there's someone that might harm you or someone that, that, that cannot be trusted and you are in way of their danger, then it becomes permissible as well. And there's some other exceptions to the rule. But the point is that there should be a purpose beyond just talking about the person. Okay. Jazakumullah khairan. Are you going to conclude? Okay. Uh, anyone that wants to... Ask me a question, you can ask me a question, or you can, I'd, I'd love to meet you all, inshallah ta'ala. I'll be here. Just don't miss salah in the process. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Jazakumullah khair, Shaykh, for inspirational talk. Um, thank you for everybody to come today, and we would like to give a special thanks to our sponsors, volunteers, and for everybody who was involved in this event. Uh, just to give you some insight on what Falak is planning for the rest of the year. So besides this event, which is part of our community service to um, our, our lovely family here in Bahrain, we have an ongoing Quran majlis every Sunday. For those of you who want to have a special relationship with the Quran, you want to be part of a community that regularly reflects on the Quran. So that Quran majlis is something that we do every Sunday. Inshallah in Ramadan, the, the program is going to be after Taraweeh. You can follow our social media channels to get more information about that. And how many people here are not married, by the way, yet? People who are not married and want to get married, inshallah. So uh, we have something really, really exciting coming up in September. Uh, it's going to be titled Soul Seekers. We're not going to guarantee that you're going to walk in unmarried and walk out married, inshallah, right? But we're going to try, inshallah. There's a very, very interesting uh, model that we have seen work in other places. We've seen that the success rates uh, are more than 30%, alhamdulillah. So we're going to try to experiment with that. So uh, keep in touch with us on social media to know more about that event. Inshallah, it's going to be beneficial for, for all of you, inshallah. And last but not least, Falak, part, uh, instead of, like, apart from serving the community locally, we also have our online services, which mainly focus on self-development and character development. As you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not change the state of a people until we change the state of ourselves. 
So Falak is dedicated to the self-development aspect. Some of us need to work on ourselves spiritually. Some of us need to work on ourselves in terms of our careers and our financial situations. Some of us need to take care of our relationships, some in health. So we all have different areas of improvement, and that's what we really do. We develop courses, online courses, that help you, inshallah, develop in different aspects of your lives to, inshallah, have a balanced life where, inshallah, you win in dunya and you win in akhirah. Just as the, pro the Prophet Sallam and, and Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala in the Qur'an, رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَا وَقِنَا عَذَابَ النَّارِ so please do remember us uh, in your du'as, remember our, uh, our team and our families in your du'as so we can continue uh, delivering such programs to you and to make an impact at a local level as well as at an international level, inshallah. And um, inshallah, Sheikh Omar is here for you guys to, inshallah, ask any questions if you have, if you have on a personal level, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. And uh, yeah, be considerate because if um, every one of you spends one minute with Sheikh Omar, then we need... 700 minutes, which is impossible, right? So just be considerate. And um, are you are selfies halal with you or uh, up to you? Because we need to. Makro, so I'll leave it to you, inshallah. Okay, so can I have a selfie with you then? Inshallah? Yeah, I'll donate, please. But we'll do it with the crowd behind us if you don't mind, yeah? All right, inshallah, done from my side. Will I have to stand on the chair for that? Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, everybody, say cheese, inshallah. No, say tajweed. Say tajweed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.